So today we will talk about some general points of the Buddha's teaching and uh, eventually we will come to explain a little bit more about the four iriya uh, pata, the four bodily posture, how we can use them in our practice, in our meditation practice. So before we start, you know, I would like to make an announcement or a kind of, uh, I was, I heard this week by somebody that uh, there was a, there was an accident in Germany. And uh, the thing is that uh, a car, there was an accident, right? So a car left the, the road and ended up in the river. So when, fortunately, nobody was armed. But when they pull out the car, then they ask the driver, what happened? And then the driver said, well, I don't know. You know, I followed, I had that GPS, and uh, it turned, <laughs> it said, turn left, turn left. And then he turned left, and he ended up there. What is the meaning of that, you know? <laughs> I think like uh, everything, you know, whether people, what, whether other people tell us what to do, or whether we hear from somebody, or even if we think that something is right, always we have to check with the reality on it. What is that, you know, and uh, what is it matching with what is happening now? We always have to be careful and discriminative. You know, this is a bit of wisdom. Because we will talk about uh, the teachings of the Buddha, sometimes to know, you know, to hear or to learn from the teaching, it is important to know what is the source or what was the motivation that prompted, that uh, urged those people, you know, to go for something and then to find some kind of knowledge and to express the knowledge. What was the original motivation? What drive, what drove them to that search? And why they came to uh, such a type of teaching? And for that, I will just remind you, you know, all of you probably knows the, the events of the Buddha's life story, you know, but uh, I will remind you a little bit that uh, the Buddha was a prince and, uh, you know, his father was rich, he was a king, and uh, actually he had everything in life. He was very comfortable and uh, he had a few houses and a palace and many servants. He had the best food and uh, all of that like a king. And uh, you know what uh, brought him to ask uh, meanings and uh, to ask the, the questions that, he, uh, that made him leave his house was, was the four messenger. They say that he, it is the four kind of signs that uh, came to him and to, that uh, reminded him, oh, What's that all about, you know? So the first sign 
was that uh, one day he left his palace and then he went out just for just for holiday or he just went out for the day and uh, then he saw a sick man uh, somebody that was very sick on the road and really really in bad shape really in a bad situation so when the Buddha came back to his uh, palace, then he thought, wow, that's not fun, you know? It doesn't seem to be very interesting and very uh, pleasing to be in that type of situation. But uh, will that happen to me? Am I liable to become sick and to become like that person? And then, of course, he realized that this is the nature of uh, all beings, is that uh, one day or the other they can get sick if they are not careful. Then the second sign is that uh, another time <laughs> he went out like that uh, in the village and uh, then he saw an old person, very crumby and uh, walking with a stick and missing teeth and with gray hair and a uh, very, very old person. So then this made him reflect about, well, is the life uh, always uh, you know, uh, we, are, we are not always keeping young. And uh, the, the nature of life is that one day we are growing old and we end up like uh, that uh, poor old person. And then the third sign, another, another time he went out, and then the third sign was the dead man. So he saw a dead corpse and this was really uh, strong for him. And, and then he realized that uh, actually Death is just something very natural, and it may happen to us any time. The fourth sign that, uh, he re that he saw was that uh, uh, once when he was out and uh, going for, uh, for a journey out of his house, he saw a monk, uh, an ascetic, and that person was very serene because he was practicing meditation and he was very pure. So the Buddha got inspired and thought, oh, maybe that's a way to uh, find a solution. And then from that inspiration, one day uh, when he saw you know, that uh, the palace and everything was really something he could not bear anymore, then he left his palace and he became an ascetic and he became uh, a, search, a searcher, somebody who was looking for the truth. That's how the his life started as a religious mendicant or you know, a religious seeker, a seeker for truth. It is said also in the text, you know, that uh, there is, there are three things that a mother cannot do for his child, for his son or for his daughter. And there are three things also that a child cannot do for its mother. What are those three things? What are those uh, things that cannot be done? So it is said that uh, although somebody may wish very strongly, oh, may my child may never get sick, may my child may never grow old, may my child never die, this is absolutely impossible that it cannot be, it cannot happen. And the same thing with the child. Although he may wish, oh, may my mother never get old, may my mother never get sick, or may my mother never get 
uh, died, then this is, this is also impossible. So those are three things that are facts. It is just life. It is just like that. So what is that, you know, to see the reality, to see such a kind of uh, dramatic things? What does that bring to us? It does not bring a sense of pessimism, but it brings a sense of urgency. It brings a sense of uh, uh, where, where, which value we put into life. What, which meaning do we give to life? So this is making you know, us to reflect about the importance of the good things that we can do in our life and which aim we should have so that the life, when we die, we are happy with it, we are satisfied with it. Another story is about the two disciples of the Buddha, the two chief disciples, you know, the Sariputta and also the Venerable Moggallana, that, that were always with the Buddha when the Buddha started to, uh, to go for his uh, Dhamma mission. So those two disciples, they were, like now we talk about those people, you know, it's about 2,500 years ago, and it's very far away in history and in India, and we think, uh, and also they are monks, and we think, uh, what's that, you know? This is only the books, and it has nothing to do with us, you know? We are young, or we are, you know, in the West, everything is so different. We have cars and the television, and it has nothing to do with uh, our situation. But actually, is it so? We are all human beings, so those things cannot be changed. Those things are just the same, you know, psychological problems and also philosophical, philosophical questions that were there in those days, it's still the same thing. People are still thinking with the same type of uh, questions of uh, the meaning and uh, all those things are just uh, natural. So. Those two monks, or not those two monks, but those two chief disciples, they said that they were born in the little village outside Rajgiri in India. And uh, they were born uh, on the same day. And uh, the two families, they were very well known to each other. So already there was a kind of relationship with, uh, with the two families of uh, those uh, two disciples. And their name was, uh, the Sariputta was called Upatissa, and the uh, Mogalana was called uh, Kolita. This, this is their lay name. So they grew up, they grew up together as kids, and uh, apparently they had uh, very good education. They learned all the arts and the science and and everything that was able, uh, available you know, to the people of that type of society. They were also apparently very rich and uh, they could afford anything that they, uh, that they wanted to have. So they grew, all, they, they, they grew like that, you know. And uh, there was apparently no problems. There was no suffering. Everything was, uh, you know, according to uh, the life and uh, was quite uh, quite uh, okay, and uh, one day they don't say at wh which age this happened, but, but probably they were quite young, maybe late teenager or young adults, 
And uh, one day in the village, there was a huge festival that happened uh, annually. And uh, so uh, in India or in those days, you know, they didn't have cinema or they didn't have TV and things like that. So the, you had groups of comedians or, or groups of artists and uh, they were going, you know, from village to village and then they will stay in one place for some days and after that they will move to another place. So when a, a group of uh, those type of uh, artists came to the village where they were, then those two young people, they were interested and then they bought the ticket for, for the first day of the ceremony of the celebration. So they were together and uh, then they looked at the show and uh, when it was exciting then they were excited and when it was uh, funny then they laughed together and uh, so they had a good time. Because of that they decided to get uh, all the week to get the show, to get the, the place reserved for them so they bought the tickets. You know. So the following day they, f they, they found themselves at the same place and looking about the, the same show. And uh, actually, their reaction was a little bit different. They did not seem to enjoy it so much because uh, actually they thought that, uh, well, you know, it's very entertaining, but uh, maybe those people, you know, they will not live more than a hundred years. So they went back and uh, they didn't say anything to each other. So. The third day, they went to the, to the festival and uh, they looked again at the same show. And uh, then Kolita, he asked his friend, Oh, my friend, what is happening to you? You, you don't look in a good mood. You look a little bit dark or a little bit uh, uh, worried. What happened? So his friend told him, oh, Well, actually, you know, by looking at that show, I think that uh, actually we are losing our time because uh, there is not much meaning in the, you know, in those uh, kind of uh, sensual pleasure. It is empty and uh, it's not uh, bringing, us, bringing us any satisfaction. And uh, then that friend asked the other one, oh, what about you, you know, what do you think? And uh, the, other, the other one said, oh, actually, I, I have been thinking the same thing. That, uh, it's useless and we are actually losing, losing our time. And uh, what should we do? So the only, po the only possibility that opened to them is that uh, they should inquire more about the spirituality and go for a kind of search. You know, exactly uh, as you are doing here. Why did you come here? It's because you are looking for something, you are looking for alternative, and you are looking for probably deeper meaning in your life. And uh, you came to the meditation center and then to be quiet and to be able to be by yourself and practice meditation to find something that is uh, more rewarding. So in those days, they didn't have a meditation centers. And uh, then what did they do? What they, they did is that uh, they became ascetic, you know, like monks or sadhus. And uh, then they went wandering around the country because in India, it's a caste, it's a, it's a social caste, like the monks and the swamis and all kinds of uh, recluse, and uh, they are not marginal, but it's a special caste among the, 
uh, Indian society. And they are supported, they are accepted, and uh, they are just part of society. And uh, the thinkers and, uh, you know, the, the yogis, and they are just living apart, and the people take care. People, you know, know what they are doing, and uh, uh, it's not dif it's so difficult for them to, to, to keep a livelihood. They can manage for their food, and the uh, weather also is not so bad. So those two, were, those two young kids, they left their house, they left all their riches and their friends, and then they went out in search of a, of a spiritual meaning. Then they eventually they found the Buddha, and uh, then they stayed with him for many, many years. So it is said that uh, if somebody does not know as it is the gratification in sense desire, if somebody does not know as it is the danger or the limitations or the disappointment in sense desire, or if somebody doesn't know the escape from this sense desire, then one does not know the end of suffering. Again, this kind of reflection is not to bring pessimism, but it is to bring a deeper sense of uh, meaning. You know, what is essential in our life? Are we just running about uh, empty sense pleasures? Are we just uh, all the time trying to satisfy ourselves and uh, be contented with uh, comfort and materiality? Or do we have deeper value? You know, this is the question that we should ask ourselves. So what are the gratification in sense desire? Gratification is when we enjoy everything and everything is fine and it's very enjoyable, you know, we can, we can have a good time. That's why people pay a lot of money just to have sense pleasure. You know, they just, uh, they just go and they buy all kinds of things and they maintain their life just uh, oriented towards the sense pleasure. So this is a gratification. If there was no pleasure to get out of that, then people would not uh, go so crazy about it. What are the dangers in that? The danger is that uh, Actually, they are not completely satisfactory. We cannot be completely happy. We have to maintain them, you know, and then we have always to renew them and uh, we have to keep them, you know, entertained so that uh, they, they can entertain ourselves. And also the danger in that is that uh, not only they are not uh, completely satis satisfactory, but also uh, people get so attached to it and they develop so much craving that uh, there can come a point where uh, they are fighting with each other and then they can get into very bad actions like thieves or quarrel and uh, wars and all kinds of uh, things that people are doing just for the sense pleasure. Talking about that, I have heard recently, you know, from a youngster that went to Africa, to Sudan, and he said that uh, the situation there is so bad, 
that people can kill another person just for the sake of a glass of water. So there the water is so scarce that people can come and kill another one just to get that cup of water instead of uh, sharing it or just leaving it uh, uh, like that. So this is the extent to which uh, you know, the search for sense, ple for sense pleasure can bring us. So following that, we are going to look at the sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya called the Sunakkata Sutta. And there, uh, it is speaking exactly about that type of situation and uh, that type of, uh, you know, experiences and uh, what people are getting into when they get into the meditation or when they get into uh, you know, uh, samadhi or, you know, deep uh, spiritual attainment. So the question, that, like the, the story is that uh, uh, it is a person, you know, named Sunakatta, and he was a Lichavi uh, from the clan of the Lichavis, and he went to ask the Buddha that uh, apparently some monks had reported that they had attained Nibbana. They had attained full liberation and the complete uh, cessation of suffering. So uh, that Sunakata, he was asking the Buddha, is it true? Is it possible or it's not possible? So the Buddha said, well, in some cases, this is true. Some people have attained Nibbana and they, they have really, uh, you know, they, they say the truth. But some other people, they say that they have Nibbana, but actually they have not attained that uh, Nibbanic type of uh, peace. So to distinguish those two, things, two types of things, the Buddha goes and he explains, uh, you know, just the basic saying that uh, we have the five chords of, uh, six chords of uh, sensual pleasure. We have the, you know, the eye, the form, and the, all the desire and the, the we read it, it would be better. The five chords of sensual desires, like the forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desire, agreeable and likable, connected with sensual desires and provocative <coughs> of lust. So the same thing with the, with the ear, and then the same thing with the, the nose and the, the tongue and uh, the body. So we have those uh, five or six uh, types of uh, sensual desire, and then they are provocative of lust. So, so they say that, uh, suppose there is a man you know, a person completely intended, 
completely uh, oriented towards the satisfaction or towards the, the worldly uh, material things like the sense desire, then that person, he will just talk about that and his mind will only be oriented towards that and his intention will always be directed to that and the person also he will associate with will always be you know a person who cannot entertain that kind of uh, you know that type of level of uh, of interest so it is like a, a, suppose there was a man that had left his village from a long time and then he will meet another man coming from that village and he will inquire from that man about uh, how the people are doing there and uh, what is the situation and uh, plenty of things just concerning that uh, village and uh, people living there is relatives and uh, only things that are connected with that village then if another person come to him and uh, talk about uh, you know spirituality or talk about uh, uh, meditation or here they say that uh, somebody who comes to that person and is talking about uh, the imperturbable, not, not perturbable, <laughs> an ninja, they call in Pali. So this is a reference for the, uh, the jhana. And uh, up to the base of uh, nothingness. So all the four jhanas, the four material jhanas, and the two uh, immaterial jhanas, this is here with the commentary, what they called as a, the anangya, the imperturbable. So a person who is intend, intended towards achieving jhana, towards achieving you know, spiritual practice and meditation, then if he comes in contact with a person who is just talking about cars and uh, only things that are purely material, you know, and he has no, nothing uh, extra, you know, nothing uh, at outside this type of uh, domain, then that person will not be so interested, you know, to talk with, it, with him. The only thing that will interest him is the talks and, uh, you know, the topics concerning the meditative uh, attainments. You know, sometimes it may be the case with you, you know, you come here, and then you tell to your friends, you know, we have all kinds of uh, people in the world and we are not here to judge them. But sometimes you, maybe you tell to some of your friends, oh, I am coming, you know, to a meditation center for the summer holiday. And then I will spend one month or two months or four months in silence and not eating in the evening time and all kinds of uh, hardships like that, you know. <laughs> then your friends, you know, maybe some of them, they will say, are you? Nuts? <laughs> Are you crazy? What is this? <laughs> Complete nonsense. So because they respect you, they will let you do what you wish, you know, but uh, in their mind, they will not be that more <laughs> interested than that. This is quite possible. And the same thing with you, you know, if, if a person is just interested in, in uh, I don't know, in sports and uh, cars and all kinds of uh, sensual and uh, you know, worldly matters, then you may not be that interested because you have developed uh, uh, other perspective to life and you think that this is more important. So those two things, they are compared like uh, uh, the leaves, like very soon, 
you know, the maple leaves, they will turn, now they are green and they will turn yellow. So when they turn yellow, that means that the sap is not coming there anymore and uh, they will soon die. Actually, they are dead and then they will fall away. So when the, when the leaves has become, you know, that color, then it's impossible for the leaves to come back to the green color again. So it's the same thing. When somebody had some result in meditation, you know, whatever it is, then the happiness that we find in that is not much to compare with the worldly happiness. We think, oh, yes, you know, those people are actually missing something. And uh, we find that uh, it is, uh, you know, we find that uh, we have something that uh, actually they might not have uh, experienced. And, uh, it's, for us, much better than that. So we will not be too much interested to, uh, to uh, you know, entertain talks that, that don't concern that kind of things. So the similes, they, they go on, you know, and then they compare one attainment with another at attainment. So uh, the higher attainment is not comparable and is not interested to, uh, with the lower attainment. So the higher you go, the less you are interested in the, in the lower attainments. And uh, when it comes to the base of uh, uh, the last two Arupa jhana, you know, very high type of uh, jhana, then when that person comes to the base of not nothingness, then he is not more interested in the, in the lower form of uh, the jhanic piece. And it's just like a somebody who has eaten, eaten a lot <laughs> and has thrown away his food. So if you ask him if he wants again to eat that type of dishes, he will say, no, no, thank you, I am full and I cannot take it anymore. So it's the same thing with somebody who has attained that type of uh, very high jhana. And then the last thing is that somebody who is just completely intent on Nibbana, so that person will not be uh, bothered, will not be uh, burdened and fettered by the attachment that's, that he may get with uh, those uh, very high jhana because he has, taste, he has tasted something that is much higher than that. It's just like, uh, uh, you know, those palm trees, when if you cut the, but the, the top of the palm tree, like a coconut tree, then it cannot grow anymore. So it's the same thing. Somebody who has really tasted the piece of Nibbana, then he is not interested. He is not so uh, attached and uh, fettered by the, um, by the jhana. So then the question was, uh, is those people who are completely intent on Nibbana and uh, they say that they have achieved Nibbana, have they really achieved it or have they really, or it's not a, re a real achievement? So they say here that uh, it's possible that some bhikkhu here might think craving has been called an arrow by the recluse, the Buddha. And the poisonous humor of ignorance is spread by the desire, lust, and ill will. That arrow has been removed by me, 
The poisonous humor of ignorance has been expelled by me. I am one who is completely intent on Nibbana. So, in some case, because he falsely thinks of himself thus, he might pursue those things that are unsuitable for one completely intent on Nibbana. Unsuitable forms with the eye and the unsuitable sounds, etc., with the ear and the nose, etc., etc. So when he does so, the lust invited is mine. And uh, then the lust means that uh, he will incur death and uh, deadly suffering. And they compare that to a man. who has received an arrow, smear with poison, and then they take it to the surgeon. So the, the person is having an arrow, you know, and the, there is poison in, uh, in the arrow. So his friends, they, they take him to the surgeon, to the doctor in those days. And, uh, and uh, what the doctor will do, he will, uh, he will probe. He will cut around the opening of the wound and with a knife, and then he will probe the arrow with a probe. He will pull out the arrow and expel the poison, leaving a trace behind sometimes. And then he will say to that person, oh, now uh, the arrow has been uh, removed by you, and uh, the poison that is there is incapable of harming you. So you have to be very careful. You have to be uh, you have to take care of yourself, you have to eat the food that is only suitable for you, on, on, otherwise the, the, the wound will separate, and then you have to clean the wound and uh, anoint it from time to time, otherwise the, the pus and the blood will just uh, come out. And uh, you, you should not walk in the wind and the sun so that the dirt does not infect that wound. So if the person does not do what the doctor tells him and he eats unsuitable food and uh, doesn't wash it and he walks in the sun with the dirt and everything, then the, 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 the humor and the, the, the poison will come back and then he will uh, eventually you know, suffer a lot from that and he may even die from it. Because he does what is unsuitable and uh, because of the poison that is there. So it is the same with the it is the same like if somebody does you know what the doctor says and uh, he takes care of everything, then uh, he will not uh, end up in suffering. So that simile is uh, there to show us that uh, the wound it is compared with the sixth internal base, you know the sixth sense base. And the poison it's compared to the ignorance. And the arrow, it is a craving. And the probe, it is sati. And the knife, it is wisdom. And the surgeon, this is the Buddha. So this is how they test, you know, uh, whether somebody has attained Nibbana or not. And even though, you know, even though somebody may have attained Nibbana, then 
how does it shows? And here they say that uh, when a bhikkhu practices restraint in the six bases of contact and understands that attachment is the root of suffering, he is without attachment, liberated by the destruction of uh, attachment. So in that case, it's not possible that he will direct his body or arouse his mind towards any object of attachment. The same thing like uh, if somebody was to uh, offer a person a very nice looking uh, glass of a beverage, you know, like it looks very nice and uh, the person is thirsty. But actually that uh, uh, beverage contains poison. So the person who is offered that drink, he will say, no, 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 thank you. You know, he will be very careful that he will never drink it because he knows that although it is uh, appealing and uh, uh, it's uh, attracting, he knows that if he is drinking that, then he will, uh, he will be suffering and he will die. So he will never, you know, he will never uh, come back to that kind of thing. So the point that I want, that, 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 that I found, uh, you know, interesting to our practice is that uh, we speak about uh, restraint of the sixth sense base or restraint of the six doors of contact. It's interesting because we talked about that at the beginning and we said at the beginning, you know, this is a middle, uh, middle, uh, gra gradual training, so it starts with the sila, it starts with the morality, and after that once, you know, you, you are established in morality, then you develop the, you are careful with, uh, with your senses, you control your sense, you know, so Indriya Sangvara, this is called, and then once uh, this is established, then you deal with the entrances, and then once the entrances are uh, dealt with, then you develop, uh, you know, a calm mind, you know, whether for the jhana or for the neighborhood concentration, and then you get your wisdom. So it is a gradual process. You don't jump from uh, from one to five with uh, skipping the steps. So it is the same thing. When somebody attains jhana or when somebody attains nibbana or something, then when he goes out of that uh, experience or he goes out of that uh, you know, knowledge and uh, attainment, then he will gradually, you know, he will not neglect uh, the basis. For him, it will be very natural to, uh, to observe uh, that, kind of, uh, that, that kind of thing. The Sangvara, you know, Indriya Sangvara or the Guttadwara Sangvara, how do we deal with it, you know? How do we practice that? And here I would like to make uh, another uh, quotation from the Sangyutta Nikaya, and it's called The Six Animals. This is the English uh, translation. They compare, you know, the training of the of the restraint of the senses. 
to the training of uh, to the to six animals. So it goes on like this. One should understand restraint and non-restraint. How is non-restraint? Here, having seen a form with the eye, one is intent on a pleasing form and repelled by an unpleasing form, displeasing form. It dwells without having set up mindfulness of the body with a limited mind, and he does not understand, as it really is, that liberation of mind, liberation by, by wisdom, wherein, wherein those evil unwholesome states cease without remainder. Having heard a sound, and then it's the same thing. And the, having smell a smell, it's the same thing. And then uh, the rest with the, with the taste and the body and the, the mind. So they compare that to uh, to the to six animals. You know, uh, last week I talked about uh, a little boy or you know a kid that was uh, taking the, his dog away in the evening, and he, it was a big uh, German shepherd, and he was just following the, the dog. You know, he, he had no control because the dog was so strong, stronger than him. So here, not only. The, there is a, a big uh, animal, but there are six animals that are just keep us pulling in this direction and direction in, in, in that direction. And what happens is that uh, suppose you were to tie, you know, those six animals. Like for example, there is a squirrel, and then there is a bird, and then there is a bear, hmm? then there is a, maybe there is a deer, and uh, uh, a crocodile and uh, another one, which one we can say? A dog, yeah. So then if you tie those, uh, those animals together, you know, what will happen? The bird will like to fly in the sky and then the squirrel would like to climb up in the tree and uh, the wow. deer would like to go back to the forest and the bear would like to go to the, to the I don't know, to where there is a lot of rubbish and uh, things to eat. And then uh, the crocodile will look for the water and also um, and, uh, the sixth one, the what? And then the dog will, will like to go probably to the village where there are people and maybe, uh, you know, things to eat. <laughs> so, and what happened? At that time, if they are tied together, they will fight to each other, and then the strongest, you know, when the other get very tired, then they will just submit, and they will follow the, str the stronger, the strongest one will just take all, the, all of them. They will follow the, the, that animal. So it's the same thing with our senses. The strongest is taking, is overpowering, and then we we just uh, follow the, that uh, inclination. This is for the non-restraint. And then what about uh, the restraint? So the restraint, it is the, the, the opposite of that. And uh, they give a, as an example that uh, somebody takes uh, those six animals and then he tied them to a post, a very strong pillar. And uh, then, you know, they are all tied on that pillar and what they have as a possibility is just uh, if they want to go, they are just turning around and around, you know, around that pillar until they get very tired, and then finally they will just all sleep, you know, at the uh, 
at the feet of the pillar. So it's the, it's that you know, with uh, with the restraint. And what is the simile? The simile is that uh, the body, the physical body, this is the post, this is the strong pillar. And uh, the mindfulness directed to the body, this is the meaning of that. So the conclusion is that, uh, therefore, bhikkhu, you should train yourself thus. We will develop and cultivate mindfulness directed to the body. Make it, make it our vehicle, our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully understand it, perfect it. Thus, you should train yourself. So this is, we have to, now it's getting more limited. So we have six senses, you know, and then we have to restrain those six senses. And then we say, okay, now if we are just careful about uh, the body, then those six senses will be under control. So what is body, you know, in the, how do you exercise uh, body mindfulness? How do you develop that uh, mindfulness of the body in the Buddha's teaching? So there are many, you know, many ways to uh, to develop that uh, mindfulness directed to the body. The first one is the what you are doing, you know, what you have been doing for the last weeks or maybe more than one month is that uh, the practice of anapanasati, the practice of mindfulness of breathing. Because mindfulness of breathing, this is a physical phenomenon. will be very brief, but we can say that uh, in some texts they, they divide, you know, talking about anapanasati, they will say that uh, the body in the mindfulness of breathing can be divided in three. There is the body of the respiration, asasa, pasasa, kaya. Then there is the body of the nimitta, the body of the sign of respiration. And then there is the physical body, karajakaya, the body that is supporting the breath. So those three bodies, we have the breath, and then we have the body itself, that is, uh, if there is no body, then the breath cannot exist. And then from the breath, there is also the image of the breath, or the sign, or the nimitta of the breath. So those three things are called uh, physical body. So if we are aware of those things, whether we develop jhana or samadhi, or even you know just basic awareness of our breath, then we can control our senses. And then from the control of our senses, then we can develop uh, you know, deeper understanding, and we can also develop some wisdom. Another aspect of the mindfulness directed to the body is a very simple one that we actually, we sometimes, maybe we make it too complicated, and it's called the uh, attention on the four postures. 
you know, the four bolidi posture. So they have divided the, the, them in the, the walking posture, you know, when we are walking, then the standing posture, then the sitting posture, and the reclining, the lying posture. So how do we develop that? As we said before, you know, that it can, the practice, everywhere we can apply that uh, principle of, from the gross, we go to the subtle. Hmm? From the gross reality, we develop more, you know, knowledge and uh, we refine our perception of the object. So it's the same thing with the body contemplation. We can start with very gross reality and then uh, we can come to a more subtle perception of it. So the more simple perception of, uh, you know, body contemplation is just to be in our body, just to experience the position as it is. It's not very difficult, but actually, it's not difficult to understand, but sometimes uh, we are missing it in the sense that uh, when the body is somewhere, then the mind is elsewhere. Like if we are sitting here and then we are thinking about something else, then this is, uh, this is not really mindfulness of the body because the mind is just dreaming about something else. So what does it mean? It means that uh, we use the body as a reference. We use the body as an anchor of attention so that the mind is very grounded in the experience, in a very, you know, basic type of experience. So if you practice anapanasati, then this is more refined. And sometimes it can, it can come to more subtle, you know, type of awareness. But sometimes, you know, like uh, you may develop jhana and uh, you may go into deep samadhi. And, but sometimes if there are a lot of difficulties, if you get very agitated or, you know, some defilements may come in a very strong, for, uh, strong uh, force, or sometimes you may get sick and uh, you have so much pain, you know, that uh, how can you observe the breath, you know? You have terrible headache or, you know, whatever is happening. Sometimes it, imp it is impossible for you to observe the, the breath. So in that time, if you just come back to the awareness of the body position, then it's a very good uh, help. Why is that? Because, uh, because the mind is always moving. It's always, you know, and always running here and there. And then the idea or, you know, the goal of our practice is to have some peace of mind, to have some control of the mind and to be clear about what the mind is going. So very often when the mind is going and running, you know, the body also is following. So if we are agitated, for example, then the body cannot stand and we are just doing all kinds of things and, uh, you know, all things with the, 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 the body normally follows the mind. So if we are just aware of the position and then we take the decision just to be aware, just to be very, very attentive, you know, and not to move, not in the sense of, uh, you know, trying to 
create pain or create a, a position where we will be so uncomfortable that uh, the mind will not, uh, you know, it will be so gross that we cannot move, you know. But just the quality of attention, you know, just to be aware, completely there, grounded in the body position. Then what happens is that uh, the mind may be running, the mind may be just uh, wild, you know, but then the body does not move. So at least, you know, before we had two problems and now we have just one problem. The mind is going crazy, but the body is really stable. So by having a stable, you know, anchor, the mind by itself will calm down. Just basic calming down. And then we are not getting uh, caught by that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, strong emotions or that kind of uh, uh, agitation of the mind. The mind just comes back to the basic, you know, and we don't get uh, caught by, by that. This is one way. We see also that uh, this mindfulness of uh, the body can be applied in all the situations. Like uh, it can be applied on the sila level, you know, because suppose we are angry or anything, then if we are very much aware of our uh, body position, then before taking the action that will harm another person, we will think or we will just calm down and we will not do anything. So the body position can be helpful in the case of uh, respecting our uh, morality. And also in the case of the, uh, controlling our faculty, because if the mind is inside the body, you know, we are just aware of uh, our position, then there will not be so much distractions with the outside things and uh, running away after the senses, because the mind is just present. And the same thing with the hindrances. There are ways just to practice mindfulness of body and then uh, fight the hindrances. And in, in the text, very often, you know, we can see that mindfulness of body can be used not only to understand the physical principle of uh, the body position, to understand, you know, materiality, but it is also used to deal with the mind. <laughs> Because once the body is settled, you know, now I am sitting, or now I am standing, or now I am uh, walking, then at that time we can be aware of the mental activity. So if there is restlessness, we are aware of it. And if there is, a, you know, passion or anger or sloth and torpor, then we can walk, or we are aware of the body position, and at the same time we are aware of the mental contents. We accept it, we don't accept it, but we, we, we look at it, and then we try to, uh, to take the measure that uh, will help us getting rid of those uh, negativities. When it comes to, like in the Satipatthana Sutta, they, they say that, uh, that the mindfulness of the four postures is used only for insight, or it is dealing mostly with insight. And they say that there are two types of mindfulness of uh, the body posture. It is the general 
uh, awareness that everybody or you know all beings do and uh, there is the meditator uh, full awareness of uh, the body posture and this one is different because uh, the meditator will ask himself or herself or who's going is that who is going so there is always you know that kind of perspective which uh, just take a body posture as a f physical phenomenon without uh, a person identifying with it. When it comes to the level of, uh, now we have, we have seen that the, the body postures can be dealt with the sila and then with the indriya sangvara restraint, sense restraint also we have seen that we can deal with uh, the hindrances when the when the when they come then another example about the hindrances when they come it is like uh, for example if you go on the highway and then it starts to rain very strongly there is a storm and there is a lot of water you know so what we see is that many people, they, they drive on the side and they park their car and they just wait there. And they wait until the rain is, uh, is finished. So what do they do there? When they just, uh, they just wait that the, the rain is finished, you know? So they can watch the rain and they, they can just enjoy being seated, seated there. So it's the same. When we see that there is a big entrance that is coming to us, we can just, uh, you know, be in the physical position and not do anything. Then there is a way to take the physical position also as a, as a path or a link to the meditation practice in the sense of uh, samatha meditation practice. And then we see that in the Satipatthana, the four body postures, they are mentioned in the, also, they are also mentioned in the Sati Sampajanya, you know, the mindfulness and clear understanding. So the difference here is that uh, uh, the practice of the four postures are not only emphasized for uh, body awareness, but also to know whether this is a you know, suitable or not suitable, or according to the the goal, and the, also according to the non-delusion. But one, the third one, of uh, the clear understanding is, is clear understanding of uh, the domain, and the name for that is uh, gochara. You see, this is gochara sampajanya. This is clear understanding of the domain. So what is meaning of the gochara? Gochara is, uh, the root is like go, it's a name for the bull and the cows. And chara, like charity, it is grazing, it is feeding, it is sometimes you know, moving or walking. So the combination of those two words means pasture, or grazing ground, or domain. And then they compare that, you know, like uh, uh, the simile is that uh, uh, the cows actually, it's like our mind. We are always feeding. So the gochara can be applied to the mind and also 
to the body in the sense that uh, a monk should decide, you know, what is this, uh, the place where he should uh, go for uh, his feeling. But mostly, it is dealing with uh, the mind. That is, what what do we feed our mind? And there are two possibilities. Do we feed our mind with uh, wholesomeness, with wholesome qualities, or with unwholesome qualities? And then how to do that is that uh, specifically when we develop uh, samatha practice, you know, we take one of the 40 uh, subjects of meditation and then we try to keep one or the other always in the mind, whatever we are doing. And then especially in those postures, you know, we are just uh, uh, standing or sitting or walking or lying and then we keep a specific uh, meditation subject always in the mind. So it is helping us to keep a certain type of uh, continuity. Because wherever the body is uh, disposed, whatever the body is doing, then the mind is occupied, the mind is able to keep uh, something awesome in the, in the, in the mind. So, uh, if somebody wants to develop, uh, you know, samadhi or very strong concentration, then he has to take one main object of meditation, like anapanasati or whichever, you know, and then keep it as long as possible, you know, in throughout the all position throughout the day, he is always keeping that uh, meditation uh, subject. But sometimes, uh, if other things happen, then he has to he has to drop his uh, meditation subject and then take another meditation uh, subject. But he knows he do he does it uh, with a purpose. And then once this is finished, you know, like. Uh, once this is finished, then he, he can come back to the main uh, meditation subject that he, uh, that he was practicing. So sometimes also like uh, that type of uh, the meditation that we are given to, you know, we should be very interested in that. We should like it, and we should get a kind of, uh, you know, going for it. We should really like that uh, meditation object. So sometimes, if we get fed up or if we get very tired, then there are the possibility just to alternate with something that is uh, not so, uh, you know, demanding. And for example, if we practice anapanasati all the time, it may come sometimes that we get tired. So we may practice metta, or we may practice, uh, you know, if we are eating, we may contemplate on the, on the food that we are eating, or, you know, that kind of thing. So there are possibilities of uh, having a main uh, meditation subject and alternate with the uh, other complementary uh, subject of meditation. But of course, if we want to develop the deep samadhi, then as much and as long as we can, if we can keep to the same meditation object, then this is much better. Also, some people, they say, oh, I am here to observe my mind. I come here to know what is happening in, in my mind, no? So they may say, oh, why to observe the body? 
you know, why to observe that gross uh, type of uh, material phenomenon. So the point is that uh, the more materiality is defined, the more you are aware of the body, which is actually much more gross than the mind, then the more you will know the subtleties of the mind. It is just like a, if you are very much aware of the pillar on which the, the five animals are tied to, then by being very careful to that pillar, then you will know all the six animals very carefully. So it's like that. So they say also like in the Visuddhimagga, they say that uh, like for somebody who is not able to identify the mind very clearly. I don't have the reference. So they say that uh, somebody who is not able to identify the immaterial states, then they should go back again and again to ident identify what is materiality. So they just analyze and they do the four elements very carefully. And then when the four elements are very clear, then the, the, um, you know, the sensitive, the sensitive uh, aspect also of the sense basis will become apparent. So the more you define the materiality, like for example, uh, here the Sarado teach a very detailed method, and then he says that once you are able to see the four elements, then you see the space in the four elements, and then with the, within the space you are able to separate, you know, the kalapas, the very, very uh, subatomic particle, and then there you are able to, to, to make a difference with those type of uh, material uh, qualities. And then from there, if you are able to do that, then material, the immaterial states, that is the, the consciousness that is arising, that is depending on those uh, material qualities, they will become very, very clear. So this is the point. finish and say that uh, uh, if you're driving in your car and you have a GPS and it says turn to the left and then you see the ocean, then don't turn to the left. So for the questions, I will read them and the Sado can answer. So the first question that uh, was written, that was asked, is that are the physical and mental aspects of the practice always pleasant after one attains the first jhana? <laughs> well, why are we looking for pleasant, you know? This is the point. We are looking for pleasant experience all the time. So of course, when we somebody 
uh, experience the first jhana, then this is a pleasure that is the highest pleasure that uh, we can experience on a sensory level. But uh, we should not expect that uh, happiness to follow, to, to be always there. Of course, you know, if the jhana is very strong, and then also if we have a very good practice, then we can maintain that happiness for a long time. But the thing is that, uh, as I just uh, tried to explain, is that uh, if by any contact, because with the, with the jhana, then we, the, 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 the other senses are not working, it's just the mind, you know, the mind is very happy with the mental object. So in our activities, if we are able to keep that very pure mental object, there is no problem, the peace will be there and the, the happiness will be there. But if we are in contact with other senses, then if we get angry, oh, I'm not sure we'll be so happy. And I'm, and I'm, sure, I'm not sure if we'll experience such a you know, pleasant uh, sensation and pleasant, uh, uh, pleasant? Yeah, correct. Are we pleasant after, the, after we have a thing? And also if we are getting uh, you know, a lot of uh, passion and things like that. It will not be so pleasant. So depending on our mental, you know, balance, then the, that happiness may last. But, uh, but the happiness of jhana is something that is a condition, and we have to be careful because it's uh, just a temporary uh, suppression of the defilements. And when those defilements come back again, then we, may, we are liable to, uh, to experience unpleasantness. So the second question is that, is it normal for the jhana to be very weak at the beginning? <coughs> it depends on their parami. If they had been practiced jhana in previous life, in this life, they have no much difficulty. But while practicing jhana, usually at the beginning stage, they can maintain their jhana concentration just for a few minutes. This is for many meditators. But if they try again and again, they can maintain their jhana concentration more than one hour, two hours, three hours, etc. And I know about that. They can maintain their jhana for seven days. <laughs> yes, nowadays it is not easy. <laughs> if their barami, jhana barami is a little bit weak, but at the beginning, they must try hard. It is normal for the jhana to be very weak at the beginning for them. Because their barmi is a little bit weak. This is one reason. Another reason is they always permit their wandering mind. <laughs> they accept different objects. This is problem. If they do not accept any other different object, except meditation object, then their jhana will be very strong quickly. But if they accept other different objects, they pay much attention to these different objects, their jhana will be very weak. 
So we cannot say exactly. Somebody did us, they can do very quickly. But somebody did us, they must do very hard. There are two causes. Number one is the past parami. Number two is they accept different objects. <laughs> Another question is, please speak about jhana practice as purification of mind. How does this happen? When you are practicing jhana, for example, anabana, you can focus on your anabana nimeda. When your anabana nimeda becomes transparent and bright like morning star. At that time, if you can concentrate on that nimeda, transparent, bright nimeda, such type of concentration before absorption stage is called excess concentration. When you are excess concentration very deep, at that time only, pipe hindrances do not visit to your mind. What are pipe hindrances? Number one, Kamechanda, sensual desire. Number two, Pyabada, ill will. Number three, Tina Meda, sloth and toba. Number four, Odeja Gogoja, restless and remorse. Number five, doubt, which he gets out, doubt. So these five hindrances will not occur in your mind when you are concentrating on your meditation object such as anabana, padipaga, nimida, counterpart sign of anabana. And then very soon full absorption will arise. That full absorption is called jhana concentration. But in this case, you should, un- you should try to understand what is jhana. For example, first jhana. There are five jhana pedas, such as vidyaka, vichara, bhiti, sukha, egagda. When you are practicing anambana, if there is Anabana for jhana concentration. At the time, you are jhana, you can concentrate on anabana padibhaga nimeda kaundabhasai. So, initial obligation of the mind to the anabana kaundabhasai is called vidyaka. Sustained obligation of the mind to the anabana kaundabhasai is called vichara. At the day, joy will arise. Joy is pity. Happiness is sukha. One-pointedness is ekakta. One-pointedness means at the day you only knows anabana padibhaga nimida anabana kondabhasai. You do not know any other object. So altogether there are five jhana fadas. The group of five jhana pedas are called jhana. One by one is called 
jhana jhana phakta so why these five group are called jhana because they can absorb they can make absorb the mind they can make the mind absorb inside the anapana bhidibhaga nimitta object so because of this reason you are mind completely sink inside anapana kaundabad side and stay peacefully there because of this five jhana phatas when five jhana phatas are very strong you can deeply stay in your anapana kaundabad side nimitta but when five jhana phatas are little bit weak you can stay for few minutes and you are nimitta you you are my will sink inside nimitta for few minutes because five jhana phatas are very weak when five jhana phatas are very strong this five jhana phatas can maintain your concentration for a long time so at the day obligation of the mind do the anapana nimitta sustain obligation of the mind to the anapana nimitta joy happiness and one pointedness this five are very important if you are my accept <coughs> other different objects except anapana counterpart say then your concentration will become weak when concentration weak you gain no maintain you are jana for a long time But if you can maintain your jhana more than one hour, two hours, etc., at that time, five hindrances cannot visit to your mind within one hour or two hours. But when you emerge from jhana, at that time, if you continue to focus on your nimitta or do your meditation object, then five hindrances will be not visit at that time. your mind will purify but when you emerge from jhana and then if you be addition other different objects and then if you have unwise addition to these different objects then at that day pahendrances will be said to your mind again but There is one story about purification of my Penarivya Mahanaga. Penarivya Mahanaga brightest samadha in Vipassana both. Based on jhana concentration, he brightest samadha, he brightest Vipassana. <coughs> But his jhana concentration... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.